everybody. Welcome to the last episode of Season 2, in which I try on Southern accents. Kind of. Um, my daughter is regularly going, that don't make no sense. She just walks around saying that. It makes me laugh. Uh, she's five. And her accent's better than mine. Anyways, welcome to uh, the final episode of Season 2 for How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. Now, sometimes we speak with someone who is an expert on change or someone who is attempting to create change in the world on a large scale, usually. And my next guest falls into both categories. She has undergone significant change in her own career and life, and she also uh, is in a career that brings about significant change at large scale. Nell, uh, Nell Minow has been dubbed the CEO killer by Fortune magazine. Uh, for her record of ousting non-performing CEOs at companies like Sears, Amex, Kodak, Waste Management. Nell is also a film critic, working under the name Movie Mom. And her critiques have been written up in small websites like RogerEbert.com, for example. She's also written a number of books. An interesting fact is her dad, uh, Newton H. Minow, was the FCC chairman and her sister was the dean of the Harvard Law School until this past year. Nell tells a funny story about how her dad's name ended up in Gilligan's Island as well. Um, I can't remember all the details, and she tells it better than I could anyways. All right, well, if you have enjoyed How Humans Change Season 2, please uh, do two things. Three, share it. Give us five stars on your favorite podcast app. And... Introduce this to somebody for season three. We're going to take a break for the summer. I usually don't record for a while, start recording again in the fall, and then release through the winter and spring. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Nell Minow. Hi! Hi! There we go. Hey, so what you last time we tried to talk, you were. Fleeing for your life, sounds like. No, actually, everything was 100% fine except the internet. We have, um, and, you know, we had this snowstorm here this week, and I was frantic that the same thing was going to happen. Mm. Everything else was fine. And what I should have done was just Skype to you from my cell phone, which was working. But, of course, I was on with tech support from the internet people uh, trying to get right. it hooked up again. But everything else was completely fine, except for uh, our internet and cable are the same provider, and that was all down. Well, internet tech support's a real joy, so I'm sure that was a nice afternoon. Well, I'm sure we were not the only people that were frantically calling them also. Mm. Where are you? Uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. Okay, I lived in Arlington for five years. Okay, well, we are right on the county line. The county line between Arlington and Fairfax actually runs through our property. Oh, really? And so I'm right near Chain Bridge. Okay, right on. We were off of Lee Highway and Spout Run, right off 66 there. Well, we drove right by there every uh -huh. time we were on the GW Parkway. Yes. Yeah. It was yeah. a great location. We spent, my wife and I spent five years there and it was five, it was the first, I think it was the, uh, it was early in our marriage. So it was a fun time to be there. It's fun to be there without kids and young and um, it, was a good, seven, it was a good place. We had seven years of that. Did you? We moved here the day after we got married, and we had seven years of that, and then we had kids. Oh, right on. Well, I looked up uh, a bit of your bio, and um, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, oh, thank you. 
you i'm I'm gonna read a few things for purpose of introduction and then um i'll I'll steer the conversation but you've you've been uh, you've had quite the variety of um almost different professions, but it sounds like you're managing them all at the same time, so you've been dubbed the c e o killer by fortune yeah. magazine. <laughs> It says, it, 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 uh, I was reading, it said you helped oust non-performing CEOs at companies like Sears, American Express, Kodak, Waste Management. Yeah. Um, you're a film critic working under the name Media Mom. Two at Waste Mom. Management. Two at Waste Management. <laughs> I should uh, tell. I get double credit for that one. I, I don't know if that was a, a Wikipedia entry. Oh, someone needs oh. to fix that. Anyways, <laughs> um, film critic working under the name Media Mom, published all over the place. Movie Mom. Movie, movie, movie Mom. Got it. Um, including Roger, Roger Ebert. You've written a number yeah. of books. Yep. And then not to mention, I don't know if this is something that you publicly talk about or not, but your father being the former chairman oh, of, course of, the, I do. Okay, of the FCC. I'd love to talk about okay. it. I, I got off the phone with him five minutes ago. I had right to get off the phone with you. I've got to go on this podcast. Great. And then your sister until 2017, she still teaches at Harvard, right? But she was the dean of the Harvard Law School until that 2017. That is right. And Barack Obama's favorite professor. Oh, wow. All right. So... I on this podcast we usually um, we have two. You you're this really awesome blend of two types of guests that we have. One of uh, the type of person who's undergone quite a bit of change in their own life, and we hear their story. And I'd love to hear your story and how you made so many changes. And then also people who are affecting change and how they do it. And that would fall very well into the category of you being a CEO killer. Um, mm-hmm. So to set context, if you're up for it, I would love to know. We can start chronologically. Um, okay. Where did you start and how did you end up making so many career changes? Well, I don't want to undermine the entire premise of your show, but to me, it doesn't feel like a lot of changes. To me, it feels mm. uh, very organic and very connected. And what I often say is that uh, when I was in high school, one of my teachers said, do you think you can make a living as a smart aleck? And I didn't realize that that was a rhetorical question. I thought it was career counseling. And the fact is that I'm a very bossy oldest sister. I've got two younger sisters who are both absolutely wonderful and outstanding and brilliant. But I'm a very bossy older sister. I was always insisted on being the president of all of our clubs. I have a lot of opinions about things. and. Um, So to me, really, everything I do comes back to what I guess I would call systems analysis. I'm very, very interested in why things don't work the way they're supposed to. Hmm. So if, for example, when I was in the government, I spent eight years in the government when I got out of law school. And much of that time I spent looking at uh, regulatory programs. If everybody agrees that we want to have the air and water cleaner, why is it that we produce rules that sometimes have the opposite effect? Right. And so I really like that. I like looking at things that are supposed to work, whether it's a movie, a regulatory program, a corporation, trying to figure out why it doesn't work Hmm. and working to make it work better. So to me, uh, uh, you know, not not all of my careers, but most of my careers are about that. Did you know that that was the common thread when you started this or is that something you realized retroactively? Yeah, I realized that retroactively. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I, that took a long time to figure out. How long did that take from, from this? I mean, where did you start? And then how long did that take to start to realize that I these start? things were connected? Well, I like to say that in my senior year of high school, I had a radio program. My high school, I went to a gigantic high school that had 
uh, almost 4,000 students. And um, so we had our own radio station, of wow. course. And I had my own radio program, a very teenage girl radio program of classical music and poetry. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it was a big hit. But our, our broadcast signal was about five miles. So that was fine. Uh, so I had a radio program. I was writing movie reviews for the school newspaper. Okay. And I was dating this guy named David. And here I am uh, almost 50 years later. And I'm on the radio reviewing movies. I'm writing movie reviews and I'm married to David. So <laughs> the biggest change I've made, again, I may get bumped off your program, but the biggest change I made mm. was I, I did used to have a center part of my hair, and now it's on the side. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We so, need to end the. We need to end this conversation. <laughs> this isn't going to so, work. <laughs> so, you know, in a way, I've in a way I've come circle yeah. um, in terms of going back to writing about movies. But uh, when I did go back to writing about movies after being a lawyer, just a lawyer for a while, uh, a lot of people would say, "I don't get it. Movies, law, mm-hmm. what are." This is, seems very strange to me. And it was then that I figured out that to me, it seemed very much the same set of muscles. Because it always seemed natural. Like those didn't seem foreign to you or separate to you. No. And eventually, I imagine we'll get to the point where I, what, what led me to decide to go back to writing about movies, because there was like one specific turning point. But, um, but so Yes, it was a, a change or a branch or an evolution, right. but nevertheless, it all seemed very natural to me and very right for me. Huh. The idea of analyzing systems and discerning why they're broken and then how to fix them, you had, you had mentioned movies in that context. Yeah. So is that, are you looking at the movie and saying, this is what I think the movie was supposed to do, right? and this exactly. is how it didn't, didn't yeah. or did do that? Yeah, so everybody wants the movie to succeed. Everybody wants the corporation to succeed. Both of them are very, very high budget um, and p- events that, you know, organizations that involve lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. And same thing, government programs. Everybody wants the government program to succeed. If it doesn't, it's really interesting to think about why. You know, people work very, very hard on a movie and there are so many moving pieces and somebody writes the script, somebody okays the script, somebody, you know, directs it, somebody does the costume, somebody does the special effects. And when it doesn't work, um, it's not because somebody said, I think I really want to make a bad movie today. Uh, it's always a disappointment. And so, yeah, I do, I do sit there very analytically Mm. as much as I love movies and I always say that the most important requirement for being a movie critic is you have to have an infinite tolerance for bad movies because you're just going to go to a lot of bad. You know, I didn't realize that before I started doing this professionally. I'm like, yeah, I go to movies all the time. Oh, but of interesting. Course I, I spent my whole life avoiding bad movies. Right. So all of a sudden I went, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? Right. Um, but nevertheless, it, whether the movie does or doesn't work, it's really interesting to think about why that is. Yeah, that sounds like. So many um, people in the creative field, that's the, that's the uh, field that I spent, have spent most of my career in, that so many people get into the creative field because they have um, strong creative preferences. So they have maybe good taste, but then they right. enter the field that they have a lot of opinions about and realize that there's a lot about the field that they actually hate. And, and sometimes they probably would have been better off just staying on the outside, uh, enjoying the good parts and never having to confront the bad parts. 
Absolutely. When Absolutely. you when you made that shift into mm-hmm. um, formal movie critic, did it take you a while? Did you end up bitter and pissed and angry about that for a while? Or were you able to just roll with the punches and watch crappy movies and be happy about it? I always say the worst movie is better than the best meeting of a bunch of lawyers. So. <laughs> Okay, that's a good thing. So I what could, kind of- I could be I could be at the office, you know. I mean, uh, how it's hard to get angry. There's, I was in fact, I was just telling some friends uh, this weekend who were visiting that uh, there was one movie that was so bad that I actually started to cry because I couldn't believe I was living in a world that would produce such a bad movie. Oh my but, gosh! Uh, <laughs> you start, you physically were crying at that. Yeah, bad. I was crying, and certainly I cry in movies all the time. But that was the specific reason I was oh crying gosh. in that movie because what- it had such contempt for the audience what uh are you what movie was it are you comfortable sharing what movie it was (laughs) it was a a terrible now thankfully forgotten robin williams movie called rv oh i feel like how old is that movie (laughs) oh boy 15 20 years i don't know um oh man can we just pause for a second and talk about some of the worst movies you've ever seen I think one of the, my least favorite movies of all time was Speed Two. I have no idea how I it's ended up. A terrible, terrible movie. Oh my but god! It's easy to tell you why that movie was. Tell me bad. why that movie was so bad from your point of view. That movie was bad. You know, there are there are a lot of ways that a movie can go bad, but that was one where they had a title, and one half of the team <laughs> made the first movie successful of the because Keanu Reeves yeah. was like so far away from it. Yeah, and they had no script. And they had no idea what they were doing. And the same thing is true with, I'll bet you don't even remember that there was such a movie, Sting 2. Uh-uh. The Sting had a terrible sequel. Oh and again, not the real stars, not the real story. It was just horrible. Yeah, but Speed 2, I mean, it, it had William Defoe, and it, had, it didn't have, and it had Sandra Bullock, so it wasn't like this. It didn't this, have a script. But it, it, at least it had some, I mean, it, it, it clearly didn't have it, a, I, I mean, I've got to tell you, the writing really matters. What's that? writing really matters. Oh, yeah, did, for they sure. They didn't have any idea what the story was going to no, be. No, well, when William Defoe started dropping leeches onto himself, I was like, what the heck yeah, is yeah, going you just, on? Yeah, you just, I know, you're just going. What are some of the, it. what are some really other really bad movies that you love to hate on? Uh, well, I, uh, as I said, the, the category of movies that I hate the most is um movies that have contempt for the audience they're mm-hmm. like we know that this is just terrible but maybe we could put it one over on them and it's not to not to harsh on robin williams so much but patch adams is another one where i just felt that mm-hmm. they had complete contempt for the audience on why that. um because it was so smarmy and so slanted i'm not saying this about patch adams the person who i'm sure is a lovely person but he, he the, the patch adams character in the movie was so smug and so careless about the treatment of the patients and was portrayed nevertheless as a hero. I mean, it's fine if the guy makes mistakes and you can have him, you know, you can show that. So that's another one that I really hate it. Then there was another movie. I got a a pitch from uh, a group that had made a movie, a documentary, and they said, um, we've made a movie, the documentary about the importance of fathers. Okay. We can can all agree. Fathers are important. Fathers are great. Right. I said, but I, I saw who it was coming from, and I said, okay, listen to me very carefully. If there is anything in this movie that is anti-gay, I'm going to give it a really bad review. Mm. Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. This is a very upbeat, positive movie, a very positive message. So the 
movie was called, oh my God, I can't even think of the name of it, but I, I currently have the only review of this movie on Rotten Tomatoes, which was an F, so they have a 100% F Because <laughs> it was so <laughs> disgusting. Uh... And, and it, it didn't come right out and be homophobic, but the implication was very snotty and, really? and, and you know, it was very anti any, you know, it was, it was just very smug and very insular. And I just, I really hated that. Mm. Um, so, and then I saw this is really maybe unfair, but I, I just gave a very bad review to a movie that's an independent film. And, you know, obviously independent films, you give them a little bit of leeway because you don't expect them to, they have no money. So you, and, and they, and they're really from the heart usually. So you do want to give them a little bit of uh, of, of extra understanding, but mm-hmm. this movie was in a relationship, and I love the actors in it. But it was, it, it, as I said, this you know, this is why people it, it validated people's worst stereotypes of millennials. And mm. as the parent of two millennials myself, yeah. I know they're not really like that. Yeah, and I just so that's a movie I gave a bad review to. Do you think it was a couple? Of, it was it was it the writing or the or the directing? Or you think it all happened in the? Well, same person did both, so I just blame him. Well, there you go. Oh my gosh! And I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing that I've noticed, and that is that this is something that really brings both of my primary fields together, both movies and corporate governance, is that very often I'll be seeing a movie, usually a, a high-budget movie, and that was true of this case within a relationship, where I'm watching the movie going, wow, why is it that nobody stopped in the middle of making this movie and said to the actor, this really is like super not working? Mm-hmm. And almost inevitably, the problem will be that the star is also the producer uh and that's a corporate governance problem that goes right to the heart of my other field where for example at sears which you mentioned uh when we were fighting with sears which of course is in terrible trouble again but thank god we're not involved in that one um so when sears uh when we were arguing with them they'd had 10 years in a row failing to meet their uh earnings uh goals uh they, they were just they were in terrible terrible shape and the same guy was the CEO. He was the chairman of the board. He was the CEO of the largest and worst performing division of the company. So that was a very happy little performance evaluation. He was uh, head of the nominating committee on his own board. So he was picking his own directors, three of whom were direct reports to him. Ooh. So they weren't going to tell him that he wasn't doing very well. And he was also trustee for the employee stock plan. So, he w- so basically, that would be like taking the president of the United States and making him chief justice and speaker of the house and Senate majority leader. Mm-hmm. So all the systems that have been set up to provide checks and balances over each other were circumvented by putting the same guy in all the jobs, mm-hmm. which goes back to when I was a kid telling my sisters that I wanted to be the president and vice president <laughs> of, of all of her clubs. And, uh, and then my sister Martha was the secretary because she could write and Mary couldn't write yet, but she could count. So she was our treasurer. That's but, funny. Yeah, you know, well, so I'm very familiar from the inside out of why you need somebody there to be Some able checks to and balances. it's not working. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, so the, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me about the type of work that you do, I imagine you have to have thick skin um, and or a, I, I would anticipate that so many people would be unable to do that type of work because you're going to get a lot of pushback. 
um, as you've done the work that you've been able to do, have you noticed that that's, was that just a part of who you've been since you were younger, that you had the capacity to be tenacious or, and or say what needed to be said and critique something without fear of consequence? Or is that something that you have to uh, deal with even as you're been doing this for this long? Uh no, that is something that has always been not just something I, I can do, but something I like to do. Mm. Uh, you know, I grew up in a household where I was nine years old and my father gave a speech that was critical of television. He was 35. He was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under President Kennedy. And he met and previously all of the chairman of the FCC had extremely cozy relationships with the broadcasters and went to work for them after government. My father came in, he said, I will never accept a job with broadcasting. And I'm here to tell you that we license broadcasters. And if you don't do a better job, we will give the license to somebody who will. Now, at that time, uh, there were only three national networks. There was no PBS. Uh, my dad helped get PBS started. Um, there were 15 minutes of news every day was all the, all the news there was on television mm -hmm. uh, from 6 to 6.15. And there was no national educational programming for children of any kind. You know, howdy doody was the best you could do. So my dad, it was a lot of Westerns, a lot of shootouts, a lot of all that. And my dad said, look, tele some television is great, but you guys have got to, you've got to pull it together. Well, he was so harshly criticized, you know, as somebody once said, don't get into a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. Well, that's 10 times more when don't get into a fight with people who own the broadcast, mm -hmm. you know, on the airwaves. So he got in, you know, people, We he has two full walls, one at home, one at the office of political cartoons about him, all of which were on his side, by the way. Everybody mm -hmm. was very, very happy about it. He's been an answer on Jeopardy. But my favorite is Sherwood Schwartz, was, who is a television producer, was so angry about what my dad said he decided to insult him by naming the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island after <laughs> it's the SS Minna, <laughs> which we think is just the coolest thing that's ever happened that's in our so family. Funny. I know. And your so, your father was the one who, um, with a vast wasteland speech. Yeah, he called. That's it. That was May 9th, nineteen sixty one. So uh, that night at home, my dad got a call from Joe Kennedy, President Kennedy's father. He said, I just want you to know, you know, basically, we've got your back. We heard what you said. We think it's great. And anybody gives you any trouble. you know, wow. send them to me. So the, the administration was very supportive of what he did. Um, but the idea of speaking truth to power, of uh, challenging the received wisdom, you know, uh, suited me. And I have to say that that is also a part of the... Uh, religion and culture that I come from. I'm Jewish. And as a culture and as a matter of faith, we're really taught to question everything all the time. That's mm -hmm. why Jews have the, uh, have the reputation of being very argumentative. It's not to be mean. It's because it's, and sort of lawyers, so Jewish lawyers, I mean, triple. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, you know, it's not to be mean. It's not to be difficult. It's because we think that's the best way to get to the truth. When, so, when you were nine and you were watching your dad, you said nine, correct? When your yeah, dad was right. giving these speeches, do yeah. you remember it having an influence on you then oh, and sure. there? Oh, sure. And Definitely. when he was being criticized, but then also gets a call from the president's dad 
What impact did that have on you? We thought it was just enormously brave and exciting and wonderful. You know, we didn't think it was so great that my parents thought television was so bad they wouldn't let us watch any. Ew. But uh, yeah, I know, I know. I had to wait till I got to college to watch all of Star Trek. I got <laughs> I binge. The word didn't exist of binging, and none of that. You know, yeah. there was still only five channels at that time. There was no cable or anything, but mm-hmm. I did. You know, it was on every night, so I got to watch it. So, uh, but but no, I thought it was thrilling that he did that. And I certainly thought of that as a role model. So, you know, by nature, by culture, by religion, by family, all of those things together. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I, that I ask myself all the time when I'm thinking about something, you know, something that personally, professionally, um, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen? And can I handle that? Okay, that's fine. And very often you'll find that it's not that big a deal yeah what's the worst thing that could happen somebody could could try to say things about me okay let them you know there's Mm -hmm. nothing they can take away from me that i care about that does seem though to be um it's objectively true but it seems like there's not uh the, the the amount of people that can also then subjectively feel that way seems it seems like you are unique in that or or are in the minority in that i would say do you agree or disagree um i'm always a little surprised i i recently wrote a piece that was very tough and uh we may get into that later it's a fight that i'm in right now in my corporate governance life and uh but i mean it was tough in Washington lawyer terms, you know, I've, I'm not, I'm not duking it out with people, but it was very tough and very forthright. And, uh, somebody called and said, well, you're really brave. And I said, I don't know. I, you know, it doesn't, to me, mm. that didn't take any courage. That was the obvious thing to do, but I recognize that I have the luxury that I can't get fired and I can't lose any business from it because mm. of the way that I've organized my life. Now I have not taken certain jobs because it would have limited my ability to do that. But um, I, uh, so I'm always a little surprised that people find it hard to speak out forcefully. I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah. It sounds like it comes quite naturally to you. Yeah. Um, Speaking of millennials, this is something, and just because you mentioned it and the inaccurate representation of millennials as a parent of two, that is a big critique of millennials that there's that they are too sensitive that they are um too that they get their feelings hurt too easily and want to be coddled do you find that to be true i mean not really look at the parkland kids uh, they've just been great and they're maybe they're younger than millennials but no i think that that uh i know there's that reputation about participation trophies and everything i, I certainly didn't raise my kids and i was a you know, scout leader. I didn't raise my scouts that way. And I don't, I don't generally think that that's true. Mm. Yeah. That's, um, I can, I think I can see where that example comes from, but I, I also suspect that it also, or that, that idea comes from, but I, I, I think I'd suspect that it's people with, who aren't necessarily able to sense their own emotions. Um, well, that's definitely true. And I have written a couple of things about um, uh, that were very critical of uh, people coming right out of college and, and taking jobs. 
where, I mean, let me put it this way. If you're applying for a job, don't have your mother call and make the job interview appointment. <laughs> I think that should be obvious. <sighs> that should be and, obvious. Yeah. And here's another one. Um, when you're in, you know, I think, I think it's a very difficult transition to make. And this is not a generational thing. This has always been true. But I think it's a very difficult transition to make going from college to going to work. Because in college, it's all about you. And it's all about mm. what, what, what you need for your education. And you're the consumer and all that. And people, I think, sometimes have a difficult time transitioning to the office. And, and you, you know, you're doing an interview of some kid who wants to get a job. And you say, well, why do you want to work here? It's like, well, I really feel that I will get this out of it. Right. Well, honey, that's not the way to do right. it. You know, you know, nobody's paying. You, you're not paying them to teach you anymore. Right. Uh, we're paying you to do work here. And mm -hmm. so I think that is a difficult transition. And sometimes parents and teachers haven't communicated effectively enough the right. difference between being in school and being in the workplace. Yeah, that just seems like one of the many things that college doesn't do well to prepare you for real yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of college, so going back to to your oh, okay. their time in college, you you yeah. did you go straight through college, straight into law school, and then go straight yes. into law? Yes. And then I did. you were practicing partly because I was uh, I, I I do regret that I did take time off between college and law school, but I was very much in love with my husband, and we couldn't get married till after we finished school. So mm. I was very eager to to yeah. get through school and get married, and and it did take seven years. So right. that's a long time. That's a that long third, time. That was about a third of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> so it really was a long time. But we met in high school, and so I I did not take time off, and I would recommend that anybody do that. Did you go straight into corporate governance then? Oh gosh, no, not at all. In fact, corporate governance didn't exist as a as a field it, uh, at all. It, uh, and the first time I heard the words corporate governance were when I was meeting with the guy who's still my business partner uh, about the job. I never heard the term, never once in law school. So uh, no, I, I I was very committed to working in the government. And that's what I did for eight years. I worked at the Environmental Protection Agency for four years. And then I worked at the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the uh, White House. And, you know, I think uh, D.C. is crawling with, with lawyers, but I think that people who haven't maybe worked in D.C. Um, or who haven't been in that culture, the assumption is that if you have a law degree, you are in a courtroom. But so many people right. go to law a school and then come out and get these jobs that seem from the outsider's point of view, to have nothing to do with law. So you, um, that sort of sounds like what you did. You went, you went to law school and you got a job that wasn't actually in the courtroom. Can you talk about that? What, what did you sure. do and, and how did that? Well, I would say that maybe 5% of lawyers spend their time in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you're making laws, which is what the government does, or, or implementing laws, uh, it helps to have a lot of you. you don't necessarily have to. But it also I, helps know, to have like a general idea of how the law works. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which, which, I, which many people do not. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it's a very, it's a great credential to have. And I always say that I achieved my ultimate ambition in law school, which is I became the client. It's a much better side of the table to be on. And I realized very quickly, this is not going to surprise you given what we just said that I didn't want to be the one giving the advice. I wanted to be the one listening to it and then ignoring it. So I did not want to be the spear carrier. I wanted to call, you know, lead the charge. So 
and I, I loved working for the government. If I could have, I would have stayed in it forever. But there are a couple of reasons that I couldn't. One was I'd gotten pretty much as far as I could get without being a political appointee. Okay. And, and another was that I was having my second child and I wanted to work part time. So I, uh, so, um, uh, so I got pregnant twice while I was working at OMB. And, um, but I loved working for the government. There's nothing like feeling that you're going to work every day to make the world a better place. Mm. And nobody does that, I think, more purely than the government. Not to say they get it right all the time, but it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And you are involved at a very young age in issues of just vital, vital importance. People would faint if they knew the kind of decisions that I was making <laughs> that affected their lives when I was 26 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was just, it was marvelous. And I was working next door to the White House and, you know, seeing things uh, all around me that were mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. When you were... Um... When you were pregnant with your second, then it sounds like that decision was kind of forced on you that you had to leave government. Was that a tough decision? Uh, yeah, because it had always been my dream to be in the government. And as I said, I couldn't think of what else I could do that would make me feel that I was working on behalf of the greater good all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I had worked part time ever since the first one was born. Uh, I was working three days a week, which I really loved and which I strongly advocate for anybody. and. Um, then my boss at OMB changed jobs. He went to the justice department, uh, to be assistant attorney general for antitrust. He's now a big, fancy, important judge, but that's what he was doing then. And he said, come with me to the justice department. And I said, well, I'm, you know, five months pregnant. Uh, okay, I'll go with you until the baby's born and we'll sort of see what happens then because I, I did not want to work for the Justice Department. So, um, so I did that. And then while I was uh, out on maternity leave, a guy I had met in the government at OMB um, started this new company and offered me a job. And I liked him very much. And I thought he was a true visionary, very smart, very interesting. So, you know, I was literally eight and a half months pregnant. And I remember mm -hmm. I, I didn't know if I could get up out of the chair. <laughs> you know, it was one of these big, soft, cushy chairs. And, but he's so talking to me and he says, I'm going to start a company that's going to advise large share, institutional shareholders on corporate governance. And I thought, I know the word I and start. And <laughs> I don't really know what any of these other words mean at all. Uh, but I know him. He's a very interesting guy. We have a great ability to communicate with each other. Mm. And also, it, in the way that we had met, um, I saw that he took criticism well, which is very important for being around me. Mm. And fortunately, my husband is perfect, so I never have to criticize him. <laughs> I don't want you to think I'm nagging him all the time because I think he's perfect. But um, but in the in the job world, I knew that I was that he was he was going to be great to work with because he invites criticism. He mm. he loves he loves it, and he's he's six six. He's very intimidating in his intellect. He terrifies people, mm. so not many people say no to him. So he we really hit it off because I he bet. liked the fact that I said no to yeah. him a lot. He welcomes criticism. God bless him. So um, so anyway, so I said to him. And I said this like once a year, he would take me out to lunch. And now it's been 32 years we've been working together. 
And he would say, now let's talk about what's important to you, mm-hmm. which was his way of saying, could you work full time now? But that was what he, that was how he said it. <laughs> really? Let's talk, about what's, what's, let's talk about what's important to you. <sighs> and I would say the same thing every year. I would say there are three things that matter to me. Number one, I have to feel like I'm on the side of the good guys because when I wake up in the morning, the mm. first question I ask myself is why should I get out of bed today? Mm. And if I don't feel like I'm doing something good, then I, I won't. <laughs> That's not, that'll be it. Mm. I said, so I have to feel like I'm doing something to make the world better. Two, I have ADD and I have to learn something new all the time or I get really bored which was very convenient because corporate governance was just starting as a field. So Mm. it was was great. And three, I said, I have to work three days a week because many people can work full time and be a mom. I apparently cannot. Mm. So that's the deal. So I worked full, I worked three days a week for, uh, 18, uh, no, about 20 years. And then, um, so the first one was in college. Second one was in a senior in high school. And then instead of working full time in corporate governance, that was when I took a second job writing movie reviews. So I never, <laughs> I never worked more than three days a week. You said there was governance. a specific moment that you yes. realized you wanted to do um, movie writing. What was that? Well, my business partner, Bob, uh, and I were writing our second book together. We'd written the first book, we had a book contract, I think it was five months to write the book. So we wrote it very fast. Mm. In fact, I panicked for the first two months. So we really wrote the whole book in four months. <laughs> and uh, so we wrote it really fast. And we liked writing it very much. And we were very happy with it. But we felt like we wanted to write another book. We felt like we had not had a chance to say everything we wanted to say. So we sent around another book proposal to uh, all these different publishers. And all of them turned us down. Except for one, which said, it's not clear from your proposal, but since we're a textbook publisher, we're assuming that you want to write a textbook. Is that right? And I said, we wrote back, we said, absolutely. Hmm. You know, sure. Of hmm. course, that's what we're <laughs> Yes. So uh, they said, okay, well, this will be a textbook for uh, business, uh, for MBA students. We said, could you send us some MBA textbooks? Because we've never seen one and, and then we'll know how to do it. Mm. So were you uh, that forthright about that? Oh yeah. That's great. Sure. And um all I knew of course was law school textbooks, which by the way have questions at the end of every chapter. And when they and the publisher got back to us, they said that's such a great idea to have questions at the end of every <laughs> chapter. And we said, oh well, you know, we thought we'd be innovative. Anyway, so so uh so yeah they sent us some MBA textbooks and we sat down to write this book. So I was working on the book and I kept going like this <clears throat> and clearing my throat. Mm. And I realized that I was feeling like I was being smothered. Huh. And I love I love to write. And uh I couldn't figure out why I felt that way. And then I got to a part of the chapter where I had in my head I had written something on this before. I'll just cut it, paste it in. That's great. That will take me in. And I did that. And I realized what the problem was, which is that I had really not thought about this at all, that I was now writing in a textbook voice. And instead of saying, this is stupid, this is terrible, 
this is a problem. I was doing a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand. Right. And this could be a problem. And maybe some people think it's a problem. And here's the citation. And that I was writing in a voice that was not my own voice. Interesting. And it was killing me. And I, I realized, I, I just was, that it was incredibly, it was really at that moment, I realized that it was incredibly stressful. When I realized that the part I cut and paste in the chapter was completely different. Tone of voice. Tone of voice. I went, okay, mm-hmm. uh, uh, let me think about this. I have lots more work to do on this book. How am I going to get through it? And so I made myself a promise because I bribe myself all the time. That's how I get anything done. I have huh. to bribe myself. So I said, all right, what are you going to give yourself to get through this? And I said, if you can get through this book, uh, I will give you permission to write a book that is completely your voice, something you're really passionate about, and it will be all opinions. <laughs> Huh. So I said, okay, what would that be about? I said, well, I'd really like to write a book about movies. I, I had, um, you know, I had these two little children. And if you remember the days they had video stores, I would go to the video store and with the kids and I would see these parents with a glazed look on their eyes, standing in front of the new releases shelf going, I don't know if this is okay for my kids. Right. What's happening? And there'd be, you know, a 15-year-old behind the cash register going, oh, yeah, fine, dude, it's whatever. Yeah, you know? right. And I thought, okay, I know a lot about movies. I have spent a lot of time thinking about it. I'm a parent. I have a niche here. I can't be the new Roger Ebert or, what, or whatever, but I could, that could be me. I could be me. I could write in my own voice and write about movies, and that would be a thing to do. Meanwhile, um, I had always been, I'm very techie. And I had been on the internet since 1986, when the, long before the World Wide Web, yeah. when it was really just military and college students. Yeah. And I would write my name, and people would say, "Are you a girl?" You know, that's what it was like back mm-hmm. then. There were thousands of people, not even millions of people, on the internet. Mm. So when the World Wide Web came along, I said, "Well, I think I'd like to have a website." And I looked at, you know, all the websites then were like, here's our coffee pot. You know, here are my, here's a picture of me with my dog. There was really nothing yeah. happened. There were no publications or corporations on the web at all. And I said, well, you know, I think maybe I could write some movie reviews and I'll do it from the perspective of a mom. So I'll just do that. And I, so I started this movie mom website thinking that it would be like ham radio, that there'd be like five people out there that would look at it. And yeah. Nothing. Okay, fine. So I, and this so is okay. way before blogging. Oh. Way, way before blogging. Way before. Yeah. Way before. So this is 1995. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, um, so my husband, God bless him, the most wonderful person in the world, he got me a trademark for Movie Mom and the domain name for Movie Mom, which was really nice. I mean, mm. nobody, there was nothing happening on the web at that point. Yeah. Okay. So five years later, uh, Yahoo. Yeah, I mean, everything had happened on the internet, and Yahoo just called me out of the blue and said, "We are looking for a movie critic, and you've got this archive of reviews. Would you like to be our critic?" Wow! And I said, and by that time, I had written this book about movies, and I spent, I had, I gave myself a two hundred dollar budget to promote the book. So I spent all of it on a, a company that sends your name out to radio stations. Hmm. 
So, uh, so I'm doing like 150 radio uh, interviews. And some of them said, do you want to come back on and review movies for us every week on the radio? And I said, okay. So that's basically how that happened. But the moment that it really turned was when I said, I need to, I need to have something um, that is really close to my heart where I can express my views. And that's, that's when I started to do that. And when I did that, I just realized how much of my time I, or how much of my emotional energy I had spent not thinking about movies. In other words, movie ideas would come into my head or thoughts about movies would come right. in my head. I'm like, go over there for a while. I can't deal with you right now. Once I stopped doing that, I felt like it freed up a tremendous amount of psychic energy. Did you find yourself trying to shoehorn that desire into your corporate governance work? Well, uh, it, was, it was like another, um, uh, another pocket in my head. So not really. I think I, I, um, I kept them very separate. But it. what it what it did do, but keeping that door shut on that other part of the head, I think that was, that took a lot of psychic space for me. It's really cool to hear you talk about it in this, in this way too, because um, one thing going back to millennials, this idea of a slash generation, have you heard that term that, yeah, um, and this is something you'd been doing for quite a while, but that instead of trying to get all of your professional desires to fit into one career, you were able to find things that, again, from the outside, look quite different and get gratification and open the door in your brain, as you say, uh, using a completely different channel. Um, yeah. And you, you know, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go. Well, okay. So I've mentioned my, my business partner, Bob Monks, who's, a, a, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful person. And he taught me something really important. Um, uh, among many important things, but one particular thing he taught me that was important is he said everybody has a very high, a highly individualist, in, individualistic um, sense of where they're comfortable with ambiguity and where they're not. And I happen to have just the way of my neurological, biological makeup. I'm very comfortable with a certain amount of um, job ambiguity, partly because my husband is not. And so I have a sort of a stability there. It's, I'm not a single mom trying to put food on the table. Um, but uh, to with Bob, I've now done four different startup companies and sold the first three. And um, and a lot of people would not be comfortable with that kind of uh, uncertainty in their lives. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. <laughs> you know, right. I'm, as, I'm as conventional as you can be in many parts of my life. And so what I've learned from uh, from Bob is that you can understand a lot about a person by understanding exactly how that maps in them about where they do feel comfortable with change and where they don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that risk tolerance and where you're willing to, yeah. to yeah. Uh, accept risk and where you're not willing to accept risk, risk and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. um, so shifting gears and talking about the corporate governance work for someone who's never heard that term. What is mm -hmm. it? Well, corporate governance, you know, we all know what governance is, is what's, what, the, what, the, what makes the rules. And the same thing is true with corporate governance. And just like the, you learn about in eighth grade with the balance of powers and the checks and balances between the uh, executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, corporations, public companies, companies that sell stock to the public are run that way too. And there's a balance between 
the executives, the CEO, the CFO, et cetera, et cetera, and the people who work there full time and the board of directors and the shareholders. And if you have a share of stock, you get to vote once a year on the board of directors and the auditors and some other issues. So for many, many years, from like the 1930s to the 1980s, the oversight by shareholders was pretty much vestigial. It had just about died out. And, you know, scholars would write about it. And they said, that's okay. That's fine. It's not important. But in the 1980s, just around the time that I came into the field, two things happened that made, created huge dramatic shifts. One was that, the, uh, that there was this guy, Mike Milken, who invented a kind of security that made it possible to take over any company. You could take over General Motors if you wanted. And that created huge abuses of shareholders by both corporate raiders and by managers. There was this thing called green mail. There were just terrible theft of money from shareholders that they were that had never happened before. So this terrible stuff is going on in the 80s. And then at the same time, instead of you buying a share of stock, all of a sudden, because of the passage of laws creating big pension funds, because of the creation of mutual funds, there were shareholders who are big enough and smart enough to understand these travesties and do something about it. Mm. And Bob Monks, my partner, was the visionary who saw that this was two onrushing trains that were about to collide. And he saw it before anybody else. And he said, we've got a set of, of terrible damage, uh, damaging forces, and we have a set of people who can do something about it. It's almost like uh, you've got uh, Voldemort and you've got Harry Potter <laughs> that are going like this. Mm -hmm. And and he said, and I want to be in the middle of that because I think that's going to make a difference. And what made him think that, and this was the first page of our first book together, was that he was running for office at one point. He did not succeed, but he was running for office in Maine, and uh, which is where he lives. And he was driving all over the state talking to people. And he went by a river that was terribly polluted. And all, you know, there was like acid that was killing all the vegetation around it and all the animals. And he stopped and looked at it and he said, now, who wants this to happen? People who live here don't want it to happen. The government doesn't want it to happen. Why is it happening? Well, he said it's because there are so many levels disconnecting the shareholders from the people who are just throwing this stuff um, into the river. And he said, I think if we can, can make a greater connection between the people who own the stock and the people who are making these decisions, I think we can address some of these issues. Well, he was right about a lot of it. And now corporate governance is not only a course that's taught in business schools and law schools using our textbook, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a term that's used all the time in the business press and political press. Right. And, um, and so all these big companies have grown up around, the, including the one that Bob started that I joined him in. Uh, is now a huge multinational company that works on these issues of trying to get more integration between what the people who own the company want and what the company does. So the is the premise then that um, if the shareholders and the employees feel more connected and feel like they have more of a voice in what happens day to day, that less bad things, quote unquote, will happen? 
Sure. Because if, um, if uh, it, it, it's uh, some of this is easier than I thought, some of it's harder than I thought. But when I first got into the field in, in 1986, um, O.J. Simpson was on five corporate boards. He was on the audit committee of one of the boards. And there were boards, you know, that had opera singers and, uh, you know, other people who had no idea what was going on in the boards. There was a company where the CEO's father was on the compensation committee. Mm. There was a company where the company issued a press release saying that the CEO was on extended leave of absence. He was in prison for financial fraud and they gave him a retention bonus. I got news for them. He wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, so there, there's these terrible, terrible things that these companies were doing. And these so are just a few them, bad actors is the idea. Just a couple bad actors, like a couple bad apples that are tainting the whole barrel. Uh, it was more than a few. It was more than a few. General Motors, Kodak, Sears, companies that had been at the top of the list in terms of uh, American uh, top performance were all sinking because of because of bad corporate governance, because nobody, nobody, I mean, here's one example. So when we were fighting with Sears, Bob went out to Chicago, my hometown, to meet with um, the CEO of Sears. And the chief financial officer came to meet him in the lobby to take him upstairs. So at that time, Sears was in what was then called the Sears Tower, which was the tallest building in the world. Very, very, very tall building. And so, uh, so they're going up in the elevator. It's like a 10 minute ride in the elevator and their ears are popping. It's just the two of them. And Bob being six, six, he's very intimidating mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And he, you know, he's, so the two men are sitting there looking like this and they're going up to the 78th floor. And finally the chief financial officer said, this is the first time bad news has gone above the 72nd floor. Hmm. And there it is. There it is. Nobody was, there was nobody there. It's like the emperor's new clothes. There was nobody there. I told you the CEO was the right. chairman of the board. He was all those other things. There was nobody there to say to him, it's not working. Right. You have to stop. You know, you can either hit the number next year or come up with a different number, but you can't for the 11th year in a row say we're going to make this kind of money and then not make it. Start at the wall and we'll draw the target around wherever it lands. Mm. And so I'm not in favor of that. However, you also mentioned benefit corporations. I think that's fine. As long as you tell people, what it is they're getting into, let them invest the way they want to invest. And the problem is that companies say, when they, when they go public, they say, and we are going to give our every effort to making you money. And then, they, then you give them the money and say, well, now we're really going to not do that. So you want it, if a benefit company, a benefit corporation, you say, I am in business and this is how I'm going to run it. And these are my priorities then let the market decide if that's where they want to put their money. So in that, um, I'm, this is something I'm personally quite interested in, as you can tell probably from my line mm-hmm. of questioning. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things, as, as, a, as someone who's educated just through reading newspaper articles, so not really. <laughs> when I, when I, I look at... you ahead of most people. Possibly. Um, <laughs> but when I look at so many of the corporations that are operating in a way that seems to be indifferent towards the common good, uh, being environmental and social, a lot of them are making hand over fist for their shareholders. And so 
it seems like that benefit corporation movement came out of the desire to say that uh, corporations who choose environmental responsibility over profit can't then get sued by their shareholders because they have this stakeholder defined as environmental responsibility. Therefore, they're less likely to get screwed. And if they lose a dollar on a share because they made a good decision for the common good, they'd be in good shape. And therefore, the inverse argument oftentimes seems to be, well, I could, you know, I could not dump the toxic waste in the river, but then I have to, uh, but then I have to pay five more dollars for this thing. And that's not good for you, shareholder. Yeah. You know who should make that decision? There's one group that is in the right position to make that decision. And that is the government. Mm. What you want is there are, there are things that are best decided by the market and there are things that are best decided not by the market. And when you're talking about those trade-offs, who do you want to decide car safety issues? Do we want it to be Detroit? Not really. Because when we left it to them, they fought seatbelts, they fought airbags, they fought fuel efficiency, they fight everything. Mm-hmm. So let's let the government decide what that is. They're accountable through the political process. That's a great way for us to decide what our priorities are. You know, when I was in the government, I told you you'd be terrified if I, if I let you know what I was deciding in my 20s. But one of the questions I was asked to decide was something like this. If we eliminate this pesticide, the price of strawberries is going to go up a penny a bushel. And we will prevent one cancer every 75 years. Who do you want making the decision? Mm-hmm. Do we want it to be the manufacturers of the pesticide? Do we want it to be the sellers of the strawberries? Or do you want it to be the government, which I think I would argue is in the best position to make that decision? So what role then do shareholders play in, in as you say, having, having connected them more to the mission? Is, mm-hmm. is the shareholder's role then purely fiduciary, that they are just cracking the whip on you made a bad financial decision? Yeah, but guess what? That works. That's when you go into uh, Exxon and um, uh, and other, you know, because most of climate change is just two hundred companies, so it's not everybody. But that's when you go on to you go into the fossil fuel companies and you say, if you would like to be in business fifty years from now, you need to change. Which we would hope that you will, because we're, we're invested in you then you need to change your approach. And I was fascinated just this morning, the business roundtable, who are the most rock-ribbed, anti-progress people on earth, have got a new thing. You remember the ice cube challenge where people were putting ice on their head? They've got a sustainability challenge where the CEOs are saying, my company's got more sustainability than yours, and I challenge you, CEO, to be the next person. I mean, it's insane. Why is that? Is that because they woke up one day and said, gee, I think sustainability is important. No, it's a market decision. They know that millennials are hugely interested in that issue. And that's their consumer base going forward. They know that that everybody is interested in that. Everybody wants that. So that, so I think, I think that is, uh, it, it is possible. It is not only possible, it is it is the right thing to do to frame these issues in economic terms because that is what they are. And so, you know, you could, if going back to tobacco for a minute, 
you could say, well, I think, you know, tobacco is really bad and I think it's probably not good for people. But then you say, and look at this huge liability you're going to have to pay out. You're going to have to change your darn name because your name is associated with something so terrible in the future. You know, I'll tell you something. In our book, in our MBA textbook that I was telling you about, we, we updated it uh, four times. So there are five different editions of the book. And in each edition of the book, we have a chart. That's my favorite thing in the book. And the chart is the 20 largest companies in America by market cap by decade. So 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000. By the last book that we did, the last time we updated it, which was after the financial meltdown, there were, I think, three or four companies in that last column that didn't even exist in the previous decade. So we got Facebook, we got Google. That means that they're knocking other companies off. Companies like Kodak and Sears that once were unstoppable. Yeah. So it's very, it's, it's, it's very worthwhile for shareholders to go into Sears and say, you have a business. When we were fighting with Sears, you know, Sears invented the catalog. They, they, they own that business. They didn't have a website when we were fighting with them. They were not, you know, so they, they were super innovative in a hundred years ago, but yeah. they were not, you know, but they were not keeping up with it. So, mm. you know, they didn't have an 800 number. They didn't have an 800 number. Mm. I mean, come on. So what do you do? How do you keep any enterprise vital and alive and reinventing itself all the time? Well, it helps to have some hard questions coming in from the people who care. And I would say that's the shareholders. And if I'm not mistaken, did I read something about your background where part of what you do is is when you're taking on these cases is activate the shareholder base and coalesce the perspective of the shareholders? Or is that something? Well, I've had, as I said, Bob and I have had four different companies. We've done different things with the different companies. And in the first one, we simply created a publication that went to the large shareholders and said, here, here, this will help you understand these issues better. I see. Um, and in the second one, we actually would buy stock in these underperforming companies and then go in to see them and say, we have a lot of friends who are shareholders. And when I say friends, I'm not talking about my grandparents, you know, who have their 20 shares of stock. I'm talking about big pension funds and money managers, hundreds of millions of dollars of stock and say, these people respect us. They don't like you. Um, what are we going to do to help them like you better? I see. Uh, you, you can replace the CEO if you, you know, or the CEO you have can start doing a better job. So what advice do you have now to people who want to make the world a better place and who uh, are trying to figure out how to do that in the marketplace in particular? Well, the first uh, piece of advice I would give is to find out somewhere you have some money. I mean, either your company has a pension fund for you or uh, maybe it's your insurance company somewhere. I'm not talking about your personal bank account, but there's some money, your 401k. Start out by asking them how they vote their proxies. Are they voting in favor of, and we, Bob, it was Bob's idea to make them have to disclose that. He fought for 14 years. Now they have to disclose it. So take a look. So say, say to your whoever's managing your money, um, uh, what's your policy on outrageous CEO packages? Uh, what's your policy on shareholder resolutions on climate change? How are you voting those? And, you know, I always say that 
Um, boards of directors are like subatomic particles. They behave differently when they're observed. And the same thing is true of chil- children. And the same thing is true of you know, anybody that is working for you. So if you go to uh, whoever is managing your money and say, just tell me how, you know, how you're putting the proxies, um, they'll, they'll, they'll up their game a little bit because they'll know you're paying attention. And then, um, uh, then there are, you know, great resources for individual investors uh, online um, that will, help, you know, Motley Fool is really great for one, mm-hmm. and um, and that will help you understand the companies better. Uh, I know it's funny, people. It's a psychological quirk. People seem to feel that they can do better. You know, my husband texted me from the from Costco this week. He said, "Which paper towel?" is not owned by the Koch brothers. That's what I want to buy. <laughs> so I'm sitting here, I'm at home looking it up, you know, and, and, so, <laughs> and That's so and specific. We, I know. We seem to feel that we can make a bigger difference by our purchases than through this other stuff. But trust me, the other stuff is what is where they really feel. Is, like. that, is that really where the, that's what I was going to ask you, if that's really where the change happens? Because, I mean, so many people... We don't know how to operate in the stock market. It's this other world to the average, yeah. the average American. So you're left with boycotting. And if you're even thinking about this type of, of purchasing power, you're left with either boycotting or trying to find companies that align with your values. But I can't imagine that the average person would think, you know what I want to do? I'm going to buy some stocks in a company that I think could do good, but maybe is going off the rails a little bit. And I'm going to and then I'm going to bug the hell out of them so that the board. I highly recommend it. It's super fun. So how do you, how does one, do, you must have this somewhere online, but how, how yeah. does one do, like, is there a checklist of things that just the average, you know how sure. the average Joe and Jane can do this? Yes. It's not easy to find online, but send me an email and I will tell you how to do it. N-M-I-N-O-W at yahoo.com. Uh, there are four people. Um, who are responsible for something like 75% of all the shareholder proposals that are filed. And you can look at their proposals and, and just submit the same one, which is what I advocate. Don't, don't make up your own. Don't get creative because yeah. the company will fight you and you don't want to get into that. So there are, so there are proposals and you want it, and, and, but they are, they've been tremendously effective. How are you feeling these days now in this, in this, uh, climate that we're in um where there's such there's such intensity in the political climate to say the least and someone who is who is thoughtful about the environment who cares about um who has a particular bend anyways on how environmental responsibility should take place uh you worked for the EPA you are pro marketplace um how are you feeling about where we're at right now you know uh uh, I, uh, I just did what I just participated. I think it was my seventh protest since Trump was elected. Um, mm-hmm. it's nice that I live in Washington and I can just pop over to the, to march around. Um, so, uh, that was the protect the Mueller protest that I was just, that oh. I just did. Um, and, uh, in a way, uh, I mean, I, I'm completely horrified by what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing now. They've just, you know, they've got a coal lobbyist running the thing. It's, it's, uh, it's 
not even the fox guarding the hen house. It's it's like the fox, the wolf, the elephant, and you know, it's just horrible. Um, but interestingly, that has had some advantages as well. I think it's if it if we had a good strong EPA in place, you wouldn't see the business community competing with itself to see who can be more sustainable. You wouldn't see business leaders calling for us to rejoin the Paris Accords, which we have. Uh, you wouldn't see business leaders quitting the White House uh, advisory councils because they're so offended by what he's doing. And you wouldn't see votes, shareholder votes of over 60% on some of our shareholder resolutions, because I think that the market has realized you can't count on the government right now. We better step it up. We don't have time to waste on this. So that's actually, uh, I've been involved with one group called the 5050 Climate Project. I'm, I'm sorry, that is what it's called. It's about to change its name, though. So it's changing its name to Majority Action because they're not just doing climate, they're doing um, guns and, and some other uh, social policy things, too. And they've been terrifically successful. They got a really good uh, got majority vote on a gun resolution at the parent company of Smith & Wesson. And again, in very economic terms, saying consumers want more gun safety. Um, you were actually making progress on that until you decided to stop because of pressure from the NRA. What can we do to get you to do that? Mm -hmm. Why is your board so insular? Why, why uh, there are a number of conflicts of interest on the board? You know, so that that's that's very constructive. So, um, so yeah, there's you know there there are a lot of wonderful results from a terrible situation do you do you think that is how it has to be does the epa have to all but implode or go in the in the wrong direction for the business community to wake up and stop using a term that you had, had used earlier externalizing responsibility yes i do except the other point that i made earlier which is that uh that the consumer community, particularly the millennials, are so devoted to these issues that companies are going to have to, you know, to 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 um, give one example. Um, Heaven can wait. The movie with Warren Beatty. He he says something there, which at, when the movie came out was perceived as being kind of hippie, wild, you know, couldn't possibly happen. He says. I think consumers would be happy to pay an extra couple of pennies for a can of tuna if we wrote on the can, no dolphins were harmed in the, in the catching of this tuna. And everyone went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, you now get dolphin-free tuna. You now get PABA baby bottles. You now get why? Because consumers care about that. Um, and I think we're at that point now where businesses are responding to market demand as well as, 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 well as a total failure of governance. I have a couple more questions for you. Are you do you have okay. a, um, as much time as you want? Okay, I'm, great. It's a great conversation. Thank you. No, I'm enjoying it tremendously. Um, Facebook is who I want to talk about next. Thursday, okay. the Times just released a uh, long piece. I'm not sure if you saw it yeah. on Facebook. They've been under not enough scrutiny, but increasingly more scrutiny. And uh, what do you make of of that type of of company where um, I've got. I have some opinions about it, but I'd love. What is your thoughts on on what's emerging as potentially a corporate? Is is it emerging? I probably should say as a corporate governance issue. It's a huge corporate governance issue, and 
I just get a big fat, I told you so on this one, because when Facebook went public, they went public in a way that allowed Mark Zuckerberg to retain control. 60%, right? Yeah. And that is a disaster waiting to happen. That is always going to happen. And these companies that want the access to capital and the limits on liability of a public company that can sell stock to the public, but they want the control of a private company, you know, they get the best of both worlds. And that leaves the worst of both worlds for the rest of us. Um, as they say about Facebook, if you're not paying them, then you are the product. And it's a, it is a very, very troubling thing. And, I'll t- and as a business matter, going back, just like tobacco and just like the fossil fuel companies, people are leaving Facebook in droves. Facebook has got more grandmothers on it than it's got college students, I think. Yeah. That may be an exaggeration, but not much. And, and it's not cool and fun and sexy anymore. And everybody is very, very concerned about the privacy issues. And it is a big engraved invitation for someone to come along and say, I'm going to set up a Facebook 2.0 where you pay $100 a year to subscribe and we don't sell your information to right. anybody. Do you, so in these, this, that's one of the questions I have when you see a company, and this is where my own personal opinion is starting to show through, which I think Facebook is, I've been working with them for, um, oh man, for years on the advertising side of what I do. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I've never enjoyed working um, I've never liked what I've seen right, right back to the very beginning of a guy who stole someone else's idea that mm-hmm. it just seems like there are plenty of good people that work there, but there was something rotten from the beginning and it's just continued to fester. So I have, I have opinions about, about Facebook and, and part of that leads me to, I don't, I don't, I wonder if it's a redeemable situation or if they should just get subsumed and beaten at their own game by another company. In other words, do you go and try and hammer them on all the stuff they've done wrong? And this probably is a false either or, or do you stay, or do you go start another company that uh, takes them down? You start another company that takes them down. I think it'd be easy pickings and, you know, you'd have to pay a lot for servers, you know, but, but other than that, the, the costs of entry are, are not tremendously high. I think that, what is, I might have given you a different answer a week ago, but what we learned from this New York Times story is how fundamentally dishonest they are. Right, precisely. And you can't fix that. You can't fix that. If they had come forward and been, wow, this is, these are growing pains, we're going to address it. But for them to try to, muddy the waters the way they did is indefensible. The, the, the I, I, I should say, I wrote an article once said that I, I believe in capital punishment, but only for corporations. Mm. So I'm completely opposed to capital punishment for human beings. But if a corporation is a person, which the Supreme Court says they are, then there are times when I think that uh, capital punishment is appropriate. It does seem like, I mean, them their efforts to obfuscate and use lobbying firms to change the story is, um, man, that's it's disgusting. It's, it's just like the main street investors. That seems to be the game plan. They get a, they get a Twitter account. They, uh, 
they get a website, they get a name that has nothing to do with what it is, and they get a bunch of publicists. And it is, it is, uh, you know, John Oliver had a great segment about this. It is absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just had uh, a, a gentleman named Steve Almond on the podcast a few. Oh yeah, he's weeks great. Back. He's he's wonderful, and he yeah. Um, in his in his newest book, Bad Stories, he talks a lot about the negative implications uh, once the fairness doctrine was. Um, taken right. apart. Was your dad part of the, was, was he part of that? It, bringing the well, fairness doctrine? Taken apart? No. No, oh, bringing right. it to life. Oh, bring it to life. No, it was already in effect when he was at the FCC. The, the one interesting uh, interaction he had with the fairness doctrine was my dad was in his 20s. He was working on the Adley Stevenson presidential campaign. And Adley Stevenson said, I Adelson, of course, was governor of Illinois. He said, I uh, would like to follow in the great Illinois tradition of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. <clears throat> I, would, I think we should have debates for presidential candidates. And my dad said, well, uh, fairness doctrine uh, is, makes that impossible. And they said, well, why don't you go to the FCC and see if you can get them to give us an exemption? So it took them about eight years. But that's how the Kennedy-Nixon debate came, have, wow. happened. Wow. My dad was very involved in that and, in fact, still serves at age 92 on the, as vice chairman of the Presidential Debates Commission. He's been personally involved in every presidential debate that ever was in this country. Wow. And he, he was there at that Kennedy and Nixon debate in 1960. Do, do you so, have similar views to Steve that since, since it was dismantled, there's been bad, it, it's, it's caused uh, a slew of bad things to happen? Uh, I guess my view on it is, yeah, there's no way to fix that now because the Fairness Doctrine was in effect because you had, as I said, three national broadcast channels that were all licensed by the government. Now you have literally hundreds of channels, most of which are not licensed by the government, and websites. And it, so it doesn't, you, you, can't, you can't fix that. You're going to go to every website and say you have to be balanced. Right. You know, um, there's a First Amendment problem where if you go to, any of these channels now and say, let us, let us in the government tell you what you have to say. The Supreme Court's never going to go for that. So yeah, I think there was a, a lot that was very worthwhile in the Fairness, fairness Doctrine. Uh, but um, I'll tell you one case, if you have a minute, I'll tell you I'd love case to hear my, it. Dad, my dad worked on. So my dad was at the office of the FCC and uh, the phone rang and it was um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. What? <laughs> so so uh, she said, uh, he's, I said, oh, Mrs. Roosevelt, what can I do for you? She said, why haven't you done anything about Reverend Smith? And he said, I'm terribly sorry. I, I don't know anything about it. Um, let mm. me look into it and I will call you back. So it turns out Reverend Smith was a black minister who was running for office and they wouldn't let him on television in uh, I think it was I think it was Alabama. They would not let him be on television. And the guy he, guy wow. he was running against was the incumbent. And the station said, "Well, the incumbent isn't on, so we don't have to put you on." Wow. Okay, so it had been sitting on a desk in the FCC under a pile of papers and it wasn't going anywhere. So my father said, "Call the station, tell them they have to put Reverend Smith on the air." So they did, and he lost because it was 1962. Mm -hmm. But 
couple of things happened after that. One was, and this goes back to your asking me about whether it takes courage to stand up to people. So shortly after that, my dad was called in to testify before Congress, and the man who defeated Reverend Smith was uh, was there and and said to my father, "What makes you think that you have the authority to tell a television station who they can put on the air?" And my father said, "I would like the record to show, Congressman, that you are speaking about Reverend Smith, who was your opponent." And that you were the one who kept him off the air. Wow. And the congressman got up and left the room. Wow. Yeah. So, um, all right. So many, 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 many years went by. And uh, the Democratic Convention was being held in Chicago. Not the 1968 one. This was after that. This was a Clinton one. And my dad was invited to a... um, I'm sorry, it was Mississippi. I know it was it was Mississippi. Hmm. My dad was invited to meet with the delegation from Mississippi, and a guy came up to him, and uh, he said, uh, I just want to thank you. I was Reverend Smith's campaign manager, and we are very grateful for what you did all wow. those years ago. And my father said, well, that's that's wonderful. What what do you do now? And he said, we own that radio station. We own that TV station now. Wow. is that great? Yes, that's so, amazing. But anyway, that was the, that was the fairness doctrine, and the station said, since we're not letting, you know, since the incumbent has chosen not to go, he didn't feel like he had he had to be on TV. We don't have to put you on. Man, oh man, wow. Well, one of the things that I always like to ask in in closing, two things: um, if there's any just advice you would share with people who find themselves in a similar situation, in that they, in your particular situation, maybe have a skill set or a way of seeing the world that would make its way into multiple career paths, um, how, how you would help someone who's thinking about doing something like that three days a week here, two days a week there. Uh, and, uh, if you have any advice for, for how they should go about thinking about it or what they might do. Well, I think there are two questions you want to ask yourself. The first one is, as I said, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen is I could find out I don't like it and then do something else. I could make a mistake. Maybe I'm not as good as it as, as I thought I was. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be that person. You know, give it a try. You, you, you really have nothing to lose most of the time. So give it a try. Set yourself, you know, some kind of a, what they would call in, in um, the stock market, a stop loss order. Say, I'm, I'll only spend this amount of money. I'll only spend this amount of time. And, uh, and, and I'm going to see if I like it. I'm going to see how it works. I'll see what I learned from it, but give it a try. And the second question is, you know, ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? And what will you do if that happens? What will you do if the worst happens? And then the second question is you're lying on your deathbed. You're going back over your life. What decision do you wish that you had made? Mm. And, and I guess I'll say one more question, which is what, would you like your children to see you do? You know, what lesson do you want to impart to them? Because I, I got to tell you, having raised two kids, they don't listen to anything you say. They really watch what you do. And if you want them to do something, you have to do it. Mm. And, and then they'll do it. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked you? Well, I have two other jobs we never got around to. We'll save that for the next podcast. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, man. I have amazing. five Twitter accounts because I have all these different jobs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you 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 either you're either super busy or good at managing your time. No, both. I'm just ADD. I can't mm. I can't do just one thing at a time and I can't do one thing for very long. So I have to, you know, I mean today I was writing a movie review and a comment to the Securities and Exchange Commission and I do like a little bit and a little bit. One. That keeps yeah, yeah. Um, it keeps me happy. Well, I, I I so appreciate your time, and I did all the question asking. So uh, something I always give people a chance to do if they want to is: Is there anything you wanted to ask me before we part ways? Uh, what was the most surprising thing you've learned in all the interviews that you've done so far? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, the most surprising thing consistently is how transparent people are willing to be with who is ostensibly a complete stranger. Um. I, I think that it's a testament to how just people are are good, that they are they are kind, they're good, and they want to be listened to, and they want to be heard. And I think that the fact that people are as open with me has been really surprising. Um, it's been surprising. I don't know if surprising is the right word, but we, I just consistently see how how much tragedy plays a role in in changing people's lives. Um, and how difficulty really does transform and shape people. And I wish that wasn't the way that it was, but so many stories started with something that was um, really awful or, or difficult for them. Um, yeah, as I was looking at your episodes and listening to parts of them, uh, I saw that and I thought, boy, my story is kind of, is not like that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't have any tragic life changing, you know, all the things I've talked about are my professional life. My personal life is just peachy. So, yeah. But you know, it. I, I think it's, it doesn't always have to be, um, even the people who, who we've spoken with that don't have like a divorce or a, or a, a traumatic event or something like that. There usually seems to be some some type of external circumstance that forces the hand, that causes mm-hmm. enough discomfort and enough consternation that they eventually make a change. And and I'm starting to wonder if that's what separates people who do make changes and those who don't. That that the people who do make the changes, uh, whether it's a weakness or a strength, they they are less interested in handling that discomfort and more interested in doing something about it you know at every stage of your life you're constantly being given the choice between growing or shrinking and i think the people i like to be around and the person i like to be is someone who will who will grow rather than shrink i love that that's really interesting it's it does it does ring true. It is you know I, I talked about in the in at some point in one of the podcasts or in the writing about the podcast that uh, I'm fascinated by how some people change so dramatically over the years and then some people seem to be more consistently them or the, the exact same the last time you saw them and I don't mean as a critique but uh, the idea that you're either going forward or that you're going backward or that you're growing or you're shrinking is a really interesting one because I do think you see. You see it more pronounced as people get older, um, mm-hmm. yes. because culture moves so much more beyond where they decided to stop that mm-hmm. it's it's more noticeable. But you mm-hmm. also see it amongst people who are in their, um, you know, like teens, 
20s, 30s that you start to see that happening where you're like, oh boy, you've, you've hit the pause button. Yeah. Um, and, um, and you don't have to decide that you're gay one day to like decide that that's like the major change that needs to happen in my life. But that the lack of evolution, as you say, it does seem to lead to atrophy. It does. And it's really, really sad. I learned when I was in college, uh, one of my classmates had a friend who was a uh, young mother in her 30s who lived in the neighborhood, was very nice about having us over, giving us food and, and, and was super fun and great and wonderful. And I thought, isn't this great that I've got this wonderful friend who's 10 years older than I am? And, and um, we'll be just friends forever. And when I got out of college, she just couldn't be friends with anybody. She really was kind of stuck mm. in the in that in that late teens, early twenties era. And she didn't want to be friends with anybody mm-hmm. older than that. She just was going to be. She's like Peter Pan. She just wanted to be friends wow. with people in college. Right. Yeah. So I, I always thought of her as a cautionary tale. You know, one of my friends related to that once told me that they think that great friends are people who propel them forward into more into a fuller version of who they are, and that people who they're not really friends anymore are people who try to keep you back where they where they knew you that is absolutely true and you're super lucky if you get a spouse who will always uh challenge you to be your best yes not by not by complaining to you right but just (laughs) but just by example and by uh yeah i just uh, that was that was one of the things that really drew me to my husband in high school was I said, I'm really going to have to run hard to keep up with this guy. And that's going to be great. That's going to be be so exciting and fun. Well, Nell, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me. This was a real joy. I really appreciated the conversation. It was a great pleasure for me. And I think what you're doing is wonderful. 